Hi, Jamie. Hey, Mike. Welcome to West Coast Project. Thank you. We're here to do Mr. Robot. Yes, we are. Jamie, this one is Master Slave, Episode 6, Season 2, Episode 6. How'd you like it? Oh, I thought it was fantastic. It was a little different, huh? Very different. I think this may be one of those episodes that gets nominated. Actually, you know, I take that back. I think this could be an episode that kind of goes down in history as being groundbreaking. Oh, come on. Oh, I really think so. Well, let's talk about it a little bit in general before we recap it. So we still don't really know where Elliot is. Um, is he yeah. just cruising around, bopping around life? Is he in the mental hospital? Is he in a jail of some sort? What the hell? Is he in his mom's house? Uh, I think he's where he is. I think that's the real reality. You think he's just in real life, just not in a hospital somewhere? Mm-mm. Yeah, I think he's just like what we're seeing is what we're getting to the extent that, you know, <laughs> in a very general sense. <laughs> what about the original plot? Like, where's the original plot of wiping away all of the debt and the world being kind of set free from its financial boundaries? OK, so we're seeing that like we're, we're seeing like um, in the shop. Ahmed, I think the guy's name is Ahmed. Um, the the. Um, uh, I think he's Iranian, Iranian shop owner that, um, what is it, uh, Dominique, the FBI agent talks to and she goes and gets her turkey sandwich from him. Um, you know, he's facing the reality of the financial meltdown. He's going to have to close his shop. And, you know, he talked about it in this episode um, talking about how people, you know, they can't use their $50. Yeah, there's a little bit of it. There's people bitching about the $50 limit, but we don't see general mayhem that would probably be really the case. Well, okay, so I don't know about mayhem, but we're seeing real results. Like, we're seeing real consequences that happened, you know, because of it. Like him, he's going to lose his business. He said he's not making any money. I want mayhem. Okay. <laughs> well, he's still able to pull out a last turkey sandwich for Dominique. Right. but It's kind of tacky of her to ask for that sandwich, by the way. Well, I mean, she's trying to, like, give him some money because he's not no, making she's it. she's trying to get what she wants. Okay. She's hungry <laughs> for a sandwich. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jamie, so let's get into it. Do you have any, you have any other thoughts before we dive into this? Yeah, what I, I mean, like, probably one of my bigger questions is about Tyrell, you know? is I mean, what did that mean? <laughs> what happened to him? Um, so that's a, a big question. Um, yeah, there's a lot of symbolic clues, but this this is a tricky show because I don't know how, how many clues we're supposed to take and how much verbatim we're supposed to take, <clears throat> excuse me, and how much else we're just supposed to read into this because every freaking line could be interpreted three ways. Yeah, I agree. Like, is Terrell in the trunk because he's baggage in the trunk of Elliot's mind that he's still lugging around the world with him? Or is he in the trunk? <laughs> right. Well, and yeah. And then, so is does that mean that because those people are, you know, um, in the car with Elliot, are they all the closest to him? You know, is it metaphorical? I, you know, it's crazy. 
There's a weird scene too where Darlene walks into the hotel and some dude's reading the paper about cheese Danish. Uh huh. And it's Wellick's wife wanders in the night. I mean, what's what does that mean? Just a newspaper article that is Tyrell related to that somehow. You know what the hell? Yeah, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. All right, well, let's dive into it. So it starts out with the USA Network. They use a lot of TV tricks here, TV commercials from the past and the USA Network. I don't even know if the USA Network was around back in these 80s when they showed these shows, but it's interesting that they made it look like it was the logo from the 1982 if the USA Network would have been around. Well, okay, so that is a real, that was real. Um, the, the, um, the, The Wednesday thing was not, like that was made up. Um, for the episode, but yeah, USA was around back then. And, um, so that was a real, um, you know, logo and, um, promo that they used, um, for that part of it. And, um, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, it's just so different and, um, unusual. I love the commercials because I think, you know, like I skip as much about commercials as I can. And so being able to see stuff that I saw, like, you know, back in the day, was kind of cool. So we get this 17-minute stretch of uh, campy 80s based on, like, Full House and a couple other series from the 80s. Smarmy, right. laugh-tracky colors and fonts and campiness from from that time frame of the Alderson family on a road trip. Right. So they did um, a combo of um, Full House and Family Matters, which were the two, like, sort of, you know, behemoth um, eighties, uh, sitcoms, um, you know, back, back, you know, when probably Sam Esmail was probably, you know, a youngster and, um, watching television and kind of getting, you know, into his formative time of, you know, understanding what, um, television was about and maybe it influenced him some kind of way. Um, what I thought was really cool and, um, very interesting and, you know, sort of probably right up um, what our expectations should be, um, you know, for Sam Esmail and for the series is that, um, he really went, um, full out to try to make this thing authentic. What he did was, um, he was, he was devoted to the ABC, uh, 1990s sitcoms. And, um, I, I read this on the New York times, um, article that they wrote about uh, this episode. And, uh, he, what he did was he um, he made that the Wednesday thing that they had that was um, they used to promo the fake thing. Um, he based it on the TGIF ABC um, thing that the programming block that they had back in the eighties, and he got um, these um, two musicians and uh, composers, uh, Bennett Salve and Jesse Frederick who were behind the themes for Full House and Family Matters, among other television series in the 80s, and had them write and perform um, the tune that was the theme song for um, the fake TV episode in Mr. Robot. Yeah, they drank pretty deeply from that 80s well in this in this 17-minute stretch. They did. I don't know if you um, paid attention to the lyrics, um, but it was the title of the of the... Um, like of the theme song was imagine a world gone insane. <laughs> well, that fits. <laughs> and the lyrics are pretty cool. Um, pretty interesting. Um, I'll either send you a link 
um, to them or I'll post them on, um, on my site or we could probably link to um, them from both, from both websites uh, later so the audience can actually go and take a look. Well, we get some really inappropriate laugh tracks too, which are like theme, thematic of the 80s sitcoms. Like the motion in the trunk, the cancer coughing. Oh, I got pushed out a window. <laughs> Laugh track kicks in. Right. Pretty yeah. Crazy. That was really... It made it. It made it semi funny, semi insane. It, it sounded really demonic almost to, to hear this laugh track. Yeah. I mean. Okay. So that was. I thought it was really um, fantastic because you know. The shows back then really did, I mean, now with the perspective that we have now and, you know, then certainly they were unapologetically family, you know, oriented and um, they were very sort of aware of their own campiness, I think, um, those shows. But the way that um, Sam Esmail took on um, the laugh track was the, the kind of like bizarro world, almost like um, absurd kind of um take where yeah you're laughing at something that you shouldn't be laughing at and no one stops to pay attention except for Elliot who finds it maddening um you know and who is terrified by what's happening around him um yeah it was really scary (laughs) so they're on this road trip and they're all dressed like the 80s too Elliot's wearing some jean shorts and a Goofy, colorful striped shirt, and Mr. Robot's wearing, I guess, Edward Alderson, Mr. Edward, the father, Alderson, wearing a, like a plaid blue bright shirt. Uh, Darlene's all 80, 80s looking. and It just looked funny seeing him so different. Yeah, I mean, like the whole thing was great. I loved it, and I, I really appreciated um, the way that they wove the mother's abusiveness into the scene, how she put out the cigarette on Darlene's arm and then really beat the shit out of her, like knocked her literally out uh, a couple of times. Um, You know, it was just, it was really uh, fascinating, fascinating uh, to witness. There was some interesting symbolism in it. We see, uh, we see Elliot getting beat up on Darlene's Game Boy. Which was which was really odd. Gray's thugs beating up Elliot from the ending of last episode, and right. then when um, when Tyrell ends up in the trunk, we hear Mister Robot telling Elliot to look forward, like don't don't th- look backward, don't think about Darlene's Game Boy and you're getting beat up or the things in the trunk. Look forward. Everything's in motion towards the forward. That's the way to look at life. Right, and and it's um, it was really great because. Um, you know, that comes up a lot in this episode. Like, he actually tells that to Elliot more than one time and, you know, tries to refocus him, you know, in a lot of ways. Keep your eyes on the road, you know, look up and ahead, um, you know, that kind of thing, you know, moving forward. And, you know, it makes you realize that, you know, Mr. Robot's position in Elliot's life is, um, you know, really as his protector. Well, it's usually good advice, no matter where it comes from or who it comes from, to look forward. You can't do much about the past. You can only change the things that happen in the future or control them. So focus on the future. But that's like, I mean, for him, it's like, it's partly that, but it's all, it's, it's not really like a positive thing. It's a protective thing. Like, don't look around you because what's around you is awful. Well, and we're going to see why this whole scene is in effect anyway. 
mm-hmm. towards the end of the show. So uh, they, they're driving around. They end up at a gas station. And Alf is at the gas station. Right. Um, and so is Angela. Angela's at the gas station with a giant Laverne medallion with a big A on her, on her necklace. <laughs> uh, big script A, scriptic A. Uh, uh-huh. And then the Aldersons, the, the family robs the place and mace Angela <laughs> in the process. Right. Um, and then driving again, Darlene wakes up and kind of dreams this, that, Mom, I dreamed that you slugged me in the face and gets promptly slugged again in the face. Yeah, knocked out. Uh, we see a black and white E-Corp commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, their car driving along, they get a flat tire. Oh, wait, wait. Let me ask you something about that E-Corp commercial. Because I listened to it both times, like I for the first watch through, the second watch through, and I could not figure out what they were saying. It sounded to me like they were saying, we get knocked down, but we'll never get knocked up. Is, is that what they said? I don't remember. It was so crazy sounding, and I really need to know what they said. And I don't know, because it could have been, like, we get knocked down, but we never get knocked out. But I really thought both times they said up. Or we get that, back up. I don't know. I'd have to look at it. Yeah, no, it, it was like we never, we get knocked down, but we never get knocked and then, so, you know, if they're saying knocked up, I mean, that's really misogynist. Like, like, you know, it sounds really sort of, you know, very male, um, heavy kind of, you know, you know, basically like saying like, the, well, this was, you know, we're E-Corp and we're an all male world. And, you know, of course we'll never get knocked up because we're not women. You know, it kind of could be taken in a really, you know, broadly, um, you know, man centric way. So I don't know. I'd, I'd be curious to know if anybody has any uh, any clarity on that. I tweet us. Let us know. So they get they get this flat tire. Mr. Robot complains a little bit about having to get the fire the, the wheel donut out the you know spare tire donut out from underneath the body in the freaking trunk. <laughs> but he gets it out pretty quickly, pretty way like way too easily. He did not move move uh, Tyrell out of the way to get that thing from underneath him. Right. You'd have to take the guy out of the trunk to get that tire. But right. he, he pops up with the tire real quickly. And then yeah. Gideon walks up on them as a cop. Um, right. He gets promptly flattened by Alf driving a, another car. Yeah. And then we hear a little bit more talk about the future from Mr. Robot. Um, and the trunk pops open and Tyrell jumps out and runs away. Uh, <laughs> oddly, until he's like flat on the shoulder of the road, just laying there. And they carry yeah. him back to the trunk. Did you did you see um, what actually happened? Like he ran, or was he, he was hopping until he ran into the fake background, like the you know the part where you hit the actual stage wall, right? And then he fell over the green screen wall. Yeah, yeah, that was funny. Uh, Mr. Robot gives more advice about how lies can be useful, and sometimes too much honesty will kill you. Yeah. And Elliot says, this whole place is a lie. Nothing here is true. And Mr. Robot, after they have Tyrell back in the trunk, just slugs him with the tire iron really, really viciously and gets this huge bloody splash of blood on his pants. Yeah, that's what I thought. Like, I thought he killed him. That's what I thought that was. I thought he, he but I don't know. I mean, it was just really so crazy. And, um, 
you know, the, um, it, the consequence that, you know, I mean, like he, t- like Tyrell, you didn't hear him again, you know, I, I don't know. That was the part that left me really confused and, um, you know, wanting answers. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, you know, what the deal is with, um, with Tyrell. So then we get this weird crossing of past and present. Because this is kind of, it has to be a flashback of sorts. It's imaginary, but they're, you know, it's the Alderson family back in the days of Elliot and Darlene being kids, even though they're really the adult versions of them in the kids' clothing. It's really weird, really weird. But yeah. Elliot says kind of a time warpy thing, like, this is it, isn't it? You've taken over to Mr. Robot. You've taken over this road trip. I'm buried here, right? So he's asking Mr. Robot, or making the statement to Mr. Robot, hey, you've, I can understand now, you've taken over. And then Mr. Robot answers, this is just temporary. After the beating you took, at least they took you to a doctor, and they show up at the hospital. So we, did, you, did you understand at this point, Jamie, that they were kind of, Mr. Robot was helping Elliot cover up his beating with this fantasy trip, this little fantasy dream trip that, he, that they were all on? Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah, because, um, well, I mean, I didn't understand it until it was kind of revealed. But when I saw, like, the part in um, um, Darlene's um, screen and her Game Boy where he was getting beaten up, and then there was one other scene where he sees in the rear view, when I saw that, I thought, well, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Like, he is going through this experience right now, and he's escaping reality by going into this fantasy. So they're at the hospital or whatever the, whatever, wherever Mr. Wherever Elliot is, they're at that hospital or that building or Ray's headquarters or whatever the heck it is. And then the whole escapade, whole escapade is kind of revealed as, like I said, Mr. Robot helping him cope with his trauma of the beating. And then Elliot wakes up inside the room with the thugs around him and Alf on TV Jamie, does this ever happen to you? Like you're listening or watching TV, you fall asleep, and your and your dreams mer- meld with the uh, like listening to the podcast or the TV that is going on in the background. Yeah, it happens to me a lot with my alarm <laughs> in the morning. Like I'll do. Um, I don't like to wake to like legit sounds, like songs or things. So I always have like weird beepy sound or ringy sound or whatever. And it never fails to get incorporated into a dream. Yeah, I listen to podcasts and you fall asleep while you're listening and then your podcast still works on your brain while you're dreaming. So your <laughs> dreams become podcasty. Okay, so what you're saying is you dream about me, Mike. Well, I don't dream of our I don't listen to our podcasts when I sleep. I listen oh, to others. Oh dude, that was a joke. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry to yank you out of my dreams, Jamie. <laughs> So Elf's on the TV, and that's how he's merged, I think, Elf into this comic uh, TV series from the 80s in his memory. Um, And Ray starts to talk to Elliot and says, Maxine developed a cough. Maxine's Ray's dog. Developed a cough two weeks ago, got frail from heartworms, and had to be moved to the basement. Um, And then makes this long analogy about how she's finally realized that she needs a human. She needs human hands to give her every scrap of food, She's only breathing because someone else allowed it. That he makes this master-slave analogy with Maxine the dog and the humans that keep her alive. Yes. Um, and then he also further says the master-slave realization 
killed her before the parasite. I think he says that, 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 that this realization of Maxine's killed her before the parasites had a chance to kill her. That, that's exactly what he said. So that, that realization that she was a slave to other needs killed her? Kind of weird. Uh, that she was a, a slave to, that she had a true master. She had a master. Um, she wasn't like her, the master of her own. Um, you know. Yeah, but the point he's making is that the realization killed her, not right. the parasites in her heartworms. Right, right, right. Uh, and then Ray just says, "Big day ahead. Got work to do." So he, we know that he's keeping Elliot as his master website building, website migrating technician at this point. Um, I think that we know that he considers Elliot his slave now. I think that's the point, yeah. Yeah. So we see news reports of the China shooting attack that ended last episode. Um, Darlene and Trenton talk about having one more day before the FBI leaves that field office on the 23rd floor of of E Corp. And they're trying to get Angela to learn the hack before they leave that floor so she can get up in there and drop the device and and drop drop the hack code into into the system on the FBI system. Right. Get into the cell phones. All right, so they kind of show us how they do it. They show us some of the technology, which I think is really tasty in this show. I like seeing this technology. So they show this femtocell thing. It's a battery-powered, home-brewed mobile tower that will grab the FBI cell phones and connect with all their messages and calls and their emails and passwords, I guess, and stuff. And Angela has to learn this code. She's trying to learn really hard, but she's struggling with it. Right. But Angela's grown a lot since the beginning of this series because she's super persistent. Like, don't worry, I'll get it. I'm try it again. I want to keep trying working at this. She's very persistent. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really in line with her metamorphosis. You know, she's changing and she's got her, um, you know, mantras that she, you know, repeats and, um, you know, all of her confidence building that she works on. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a good thing to see that happening with her even though i don't know if it's ultimately going to be good for her so they give us this one other little technological treat it's uh the rubber ducky mobley gives her a rubber ducky usb key Mm -hmm. and i guess it's a device you plug it into a computer and it retrieves the cache passwords and all the domain info and anything it can grab in 15 seconds 20 seconds from a computer Mm -hmm. and that's like the backup to this Right. Um, So that means like if you can't, if all else fails, do this and we'll see what we can do with it. So it turns out they're waiting for Cisco to set up the antennas for this femtocell thing that they're going to use. Antennas and code maybe, but he's he's in the process of getting this femtocell. And we see it. We see Cisco dealing with the Chinese seller or transport or whoever, this guy, this Chinese guy carrying the device to him. Mm Mm-hmm. And he fights a little too hard with this guy, this this uh, Chinese guy, and gets a little tortured, semi-tortured. He's oh, that oh no, that was legit torture. But he wasn't fighting with him, you know. Like I felt like he was being pretty respectful. Well, he was arguing. Right, kind of, but not really. I mean, I don't know. It was crazy to me because I could have seen myself easily in a situation like that where I'm trying to bring like some clarity to a situation for myself and understand, you know, what's happening. I'm not sure where I'm misstepping. So I'm trying to, you know, figure it out 
and then somehow offending somebody who, you know, understands an interaction differently than I do, you know, and maybe ending up (laughs) getting into a situation. You're going to get a hypo needle jammed in your finger, Jamie. God, that was crazy. So those masked guys that grabbed him, those were the masked guys that were on that escalator in the last episode. They have mm-hmm. the Chinese version of the Monopoly guy mask. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. But they jam this finger, jam this needle in his finger and break, or Cisco gets it jammed in his finger and broken off. That was crazy. Do you think he was drugged or do you think that was just the pain of the needle as the, as the penalty? Oh, dude. No, uh-uh. That was the pain. Yeah, it didn't, he didn't seem to be, like, uh, put to sleep or anything by it. It was just... It was just uh, ooh, paint had to be painful. Yeah, I mean, see, he stuck it in there and then broke it off in his finger. Yep. Yeah, that's got to hurt. Are we see Dominique getting four weeks psychological leave now from for her stress from the shootout? This is leave she does not want to take. Jamie doesn't want to yeah. take it and can't get the dude to actually believe her. You know about what happened, like her her um, assessment of what happened. He's telling her this in his office, and I guess the Chinese are trying to cover up this shooting as some sort of uh, – it's not the hack. They're not blaming the hack. They're not blaming what it really is, but it's these weeder separatists or some sort of separatists, like a terrorist group in China. Um, and Dominique explains that they were way more committed than that. This isn't just some separatist group. They were killing themselves to erase the history so they could not get caught. This was a really planned out attack that these guys are totally committed to enough to even kill themselves. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's what, you know, I mean, that was the crazy thing about it, which makes you think, you know, how that's a lot of devotion to a cause, Um, you know, and certainly we see that with terrorists and, you know, fanatical people of different types. Um, and I guess you could have people who are committed to anarchy as as much as you know to any sort of you know religious or political cause. Well, I guess anarchy is a political cause in a way. Uh, next scene, we see Philip Price on the phone with the Speaker of the House, John somebody or or other. Mm-hmm. Um, he's at this really cool mirrored table scene, Jamie. You see that the table in the foreground was mirroring the image of him. Yeah, and I it loved made it. it. Made it look like he was floating in water or about to about to go underwater. Yeah, it was um, a beautiful scene, and that's something that um, I often struggle with, um, with Mr. Rabat. I did some reading, actually, about the way that the show is shot. And, um, you know, there's some very, really innovative and groundbreaking um, cinematography that happens on this series, and it's all done very purposely. Um, And so it's not often that you get a scene and that's on purpose that you don't get often a scene that's really balanced and that shows the characters um, shot in a way that is um, almost like traditional for television. And um, this dude in particular, you really never see him shot the way, and I'm this part I'm, I'm not referring to anybody other than myself for, so I, I could be wrong, but um, you don't really see this guy, Philip Price, um, shot in the bottom half of this of the of the scene, like of the screen, the way that most of the characters are shot normally. Um, he tends to be at the top of the screen. You've been paying attention to that the whole series. We've never seen him in the bottom half. 
I'm saying like, uh, no, like ever since I knew that that was something that the, that the director, that cinematographer does, um, director of photography does, uh, for the, for the show. Um, then I started looking, but no, I don't know if it's like all the way back, but this, the show tends to shoot the characters in the bottom half of the screen, leaving a lot of headroom in the shots, like that the, you can see the ceilings, and lights and things and sky above their heads a lot. So you're saying all characters, not just Price. All of them. But Price is not shot that way. Price is shot like the way you would see him in a regular series where he's at the top half of the screen. Oh, I see. Well, maybe because of his CEO status? Right, yes. Because the the, the reason that the, the um, director of cinematography does that, I want to tell you this guy's name, and I have him pulled up somewhere in here, and leave it to me to... So the, the scam, or the, not the scam, but the plot Price wants, the, the, the deal he wants, he wants the USA to, to borrow from the Chinese to bail out E-Corp. And uh, he says, if you don't do this, the country may go bankrupt, not just E-Corp. E-Corp so huge that if we go down, the whole country may go bankrupt. Well, yeah, that's the, you know, that's the whole idea. And that it's just so, you know, I mean, <laughs> politics right now in America is not the most, you know, light and bright and wonderful thing. And, you know, really, it's kind of stomach churning to watch this um, unfold and kind of you know, watch fictional stuff like what we're watching on Mr. Robot and, and see that, you know, things like this, like, you know, corporate fates and, you know, destinies are tied to the fate of our country as a whole. Uh, you know, I don't know how real that is, but I would imagine there's some element of fact. Well, they posture this guy Price they leave the implication that he's bigger and more important than the government officials he's speaking to. Right. Yeah. Like even the speaker of the house. Cause he's got the speaker on speakerphone. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would do that with a real, in a real life situation? Precisely. And, and not only that, then when he can't get his car because of the protesters, he says, get the um, chief of police on the phone and tell him to get the, you know, the, the cops down here. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, he's trying to get Zhang on the phone, and his assistant tells him he's unaccessible. And, by the way, your car's late because protesters are blocking the building. And mm -hmm. We kind of see them all swarming around the building. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 you know, he says, you know, get the police chief to get get the cops down here. Like, he, he's got this guy on speed dial, basically. Like, you know, his bitch. Come do your thing. Make my life easier. So we see the F Society team next. Mobley, Trenton, Darlene, Angela... And I think Cisco is in on this, too, in this meeting. Um, Angela's chanting her affirmations. Right. And Mobley says, you, you know, you realize you can't chant during the operation. <laughs> <laughs> or you can't talk, I guess he that says. That was unnecessary, but it was kind of funny. Um, and then Angelo and S Angela and Cisco exchange glances, Jamie, that they know each other from the past. Right. Um, now, what was the meaning of this? What is the meaning of this? <laughs> She, as Michelle and I say, she she um, she knew he was in on the earlier plot that screwed up her family. And why don't you? What do you, what is the meaning of this? Oh, all right. So the only thing that I took from it is that this is her first encounter with 
um, Cisco, as a background person um, who Darlene knows, because, you know, I don't know that Angela ever put this together, um, but, you know, she ran into him on the street. He was the CD guy, right? Play my CD, y'all play my CD. And um, that's what ended up being the disc that Angela then planted um, at uh, All Safe, right? So Unwittingly planted, right? Right. Just by playing a street musician's music. No, 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 no. Um, wittingly in a sense, but she didn't know who she was doing it for, essentially. Um, so Angela, her boyfriend, Ollie, took the CD and unwittingly infected his computer because he was trying to get to this guy's, yo, yo, play my CD music. And then when the whole thing came out and Ollie was exposed to be a liar and a cheater, Angela took the CD, which is what Cisco was blackmailing Ollie for, and did what the blackmail was, which was go plant this in the computer systems at all safe. Oh, so, right, right. Right. So this is, I think, Angela's moment of putting two and two and two together and saying, okay, oh, dude, wait. Okay, all right, so this was the guy, and... Oh, of course they know each other. And, you know, so I don't know why she covered up, though. Yeah, why does this surprise Darlene? Yeah, okay, so that's a, a good question. Why does it surprise Darlene? And then the other good question is, why did Angela cover it up? And then, you know, the other good question is, like, why why'd Cisco be like, oh, okay, she's going to let me off the hook? I don't know what he's on the hook for. What Cisco's on the hook for? Yeah, I don't know what he did that shouldn't be exposed. Like, I would think that Darlene knows all, everything that's going on. Yeah, I, it was just a weird moment. Yeah, well, especially if he's in the process of buying that femtocell or acquiring it for them for their, for this part of their plot. Well, I mean, it's not just that. It's like he was doing that for Dark Army and, like, I It's I don't what know. he does. Yeah, it's what he does. Yeah. I don't know why that's, you know, a secret. But his band, his Chinese Mandarin, was smashing really good. Didn't so, you think? Yeah, it was. some people criticized. Like, ch- some Chinese-speaking people said this. they have really poor accents, bad accents. Oh, come if on. If you don't know it, if you don't know Chinese, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't phase you at all. Well, okay. And so an American speaker of Chinese would probably have a terrible accent. I mean, I don't know about the Chinese people, the people who are supposed to be native speakers, um, but that's usually typical. Like, that's typically the case with um, you get that a lot with like regional accents for French and for like um, Arabic. The Arabic is usually horrible. Um, they usually make it like weird, messed up accent versus like dialect the wrong accent for the dialect that they're speaking. It tends to be really shitty. Um, Arabic, and I would imagine it's probably even more so for like Chinese because it's a more complex language. So, well, we have it in the U.S. I mean, you could imagine like Rick Grimes in Brooklyn. You know, he would sound funny. He would sound different than people sound in that part of the country. Rick Grimes. Rick Grimes. Oh Rick yeah, Grimes yeah, yeah. From The Walking Dead. Just, just think of an accent that's misplaced in the U.S. It would make the scene. You'd, you'd cock your head sideways and go, "Hmm, something's off there. Something doesn't sound." Yes. Right. Yes. Exactly. 
So um, there's a commercial break here, Jamie. On the commercials I saw, it was interesting. One of them was for network security for Hewlett-Packard. Hewlett-Packard mm. commercial offering its skills at network security. Yes. Pretty, pretty appropriately uh, placed. Yeah, I mean, so much of it was great. And then there was that one commercial that was, um, and this might, I don't know if this was, probably wasn't it. Um, there was another one that talked about our 28K um, internet connection will get you connected to the internet in minutes. <laughs> I think everybody everywhere sees different commercials, depending on how you watch the show. Because I've been watching it on the USA Network uh, website. Uh-huh. I think every, and if you watch it on network TV, you probably get a different commercial. If you watch it on cable, I mean, it's all, it's probably all cable, huh, for USA Network, but. Well, I mean, these are, no, these, these commercials were part of the show. Oh, I know. Oh, you're talking about like a regular commercial, not part yes. of this. Okay. Sorry. Never mind. I thought you were talking about some of those created commercials that he actually did that. No, no. There was a real Hewlett Packard commercial during the real commercial break for network oh. security. All right. So. <laughs> uh, all right. We come back to the show and here's Dominique at, at the, at the coffee shop where she, where the guy's going out of business. Cause the $50 a day limit is killing off his customers. Mm-hmm. And probably him not being able to order any inventory at just being able to spend $50 a day. Um, and yeah, like he, he said something like the people um, won't spend their 50 so I don't get I don't make any money. It makes sense. I mean, you're not going to spend 10 of your 50 on a turkey sandwich. Right. Uh, but Dominique orders one anyway, just for the memory, just for old times. And he has to kind of slog back to the side refrigerator and get one for her. I think that was a little jabby by dom to do that again i don't take it that way i think it was her trying to be nice like she's really nice to this guy she's trying to give him some business she's nice to him but i think she wants the turkey sandwich more than she wants to help him that's like the highlight of her day is going in there for coffee and that turkey sandwich Uh, okay whether the guy's thriving or he's struggling that's her highlight of her day I think her highlight of her day is going in there and talking to him. Did she say, like, the highlight of her day is the sandwich? Well, I just got that from the first time she went in there. But, yeah, talking to him, interacting with him. Right. It's her human human one point of humanity that she touches. Right, exactly. So why would she screw that up by being like, yeah, give me my damn sandwich? I think she's like, she wants to connect. I think that's the bigger piece of it. Because she's lonely, you know, like that's a theme in her life. Right. All right, next scene, Darlene emerges from the subway in her Jackie Brown disguise. This is all very, this is another little time warp of uh, setting with with uh, Darlene in her disguise and the music and the little caper they're all doing. Right, very 70s, right? 70s-ish, yeah, I thought so. Like some people are saying like Kill Bill. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, yeah, Kill Bill, Jackie Brown, caper caper type thing. Yeah, and I thought it was so very, very well done. I was really impressed with it. Really impressed. Very, very slick, good. very polished. Yeah. She's in the disguise. She's setting up the room where she can direct the field office hack. Mm-hmm. Some slick scenes of her grabbing the key code from the maid, using the yeah. burner phone, you know, all that stuff. Yep. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was really so well done. And for an episode that is what, I don't know how many minutes long, like 40 something minutes long, 
this episode, like fully half of it was just unbelievable. You know, 17 minutes of it was almost 20 minutes of it was that, um, the sitcom opening part. And then the other, um, you know, probably that was another probably 20 minutes or so. Um, at least maybe 15 minutes was that caper. It was incredible. And, you know, so you've got like, you know, the majority of, um, you know, an episode of, of this show devoted to some really slickly timed and highly produced, um, you know, capers or adventures. It was great. Yeah. Then the four or five minutes at the end with Elliot as the real flashback of Elliot as the the little boy with with Mr. Robot. Yeah. But anyway, the cool music during this slick scene was a band called the Suffers and the song was Guan, Guan. Yeah. G-W-A-N. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so back at E-Corp, Angela's executing the hack. She goes into the bathroom to type in the script, and it's not working at first. So this odd little scene of a lady coming in, washing her hands and leaving, and then gives some sort of a signal to the male FBI agent on her way out. Uh, did you, what did you think that lady was up to? Because they, really, they didn't really clarify that or explain it too much. Um, I didn't notice that she gave him a signal. Yeah, she looked at him and she said, ready or all set or something, all set, or, or he said that to her, I don't remember oh. which, but they made some sort of communication, and then he walked up to the door to get ready for Angela to come out. Oh. Yeah, there was, a, there, was a, there was an interlude between that lady who came in for a second and the guy that encounters Angela. So Angela fixes the script with Darlene's help and Motley's help on, their, on her cell phone. And while while she's still on the phone, the FBI guy catches her at the doorway, the bathroom doorway, and starts to give her a hard time. He first he starts to ask her for a date, and when she turns him down for the date, he gives her a little bit more of a hard time. Yeah, um, which makes you feel like he would be a lovely person to go out on a date with. Yeah, he's using (laughs) the power of his color, color of power or whatever from being an FBI agent to work this girl who he thinks is just a girl, you know, worker that he wants to connect with. Hey, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble unless you go on a date with me. That is yeah, very lame. So gross. Yeah. That's, I, I had a kind of a weird encounter, um, something similar to that this weekend. Um, it, it's, it's unnerving, you know, when somebody, um, you know, just <laughs> it's, I guess the similarity was, um, having an experience with a person who is basically like almost threatening you or blackmailing you into letting them have access to you as a person. You know, it's gross. What corporation are you hacking, Jamie? (laughs) I'm not hacking anybody. I was out on a date with some dude. He wanted to get grabby and really physical and I wouldn't let him. So he turned into an asshole. Well... Sorry to hear about that. Yeah, Angela, well. Angela comes out, though, from being on the phone with the team, with, with uh, Darlene and Mobley. And while the guy's talking to her, they can hear the guy. So they start to help her. They look up stuff on this guy. He's got a complicated relationship with his mother. He calls her too much. <laughs> and then he actually gets a call from mommy while he's in this... In, in, encounter with Angela, and it's got a Marvin Gaye ringtone, "Mama, Mama." 
So that was um, that was Mobley, because Mobley said um, he's, he calls his mom way too much, and um, it's kind of weird, kind of creepy or something. And then he's like, "It's something I'm going to take advantage of." <laughs> and so that was him. He hacked into that dude's phone and was and made his mom look like his mom was calling, just I think to throw him off his game for a minute, buy some time. Could be. So you think that was Mobley calling from the mother's number? Yes. Interesting. That didn't even cross my mind. I thought it, thought of it as coincidence. It was a throwback um, to uh, season one in the episode uh, where they went to Steel Mountain. Mobley pulled a little trick like that, um, hacking the phone of the security guard at Steel Mountain and doing the call from the husband. Remember that call where it was like, um, you know, I'm in the hospital or it was like, it wasn't a call, it was a text. I'm in the hospital, it's the worst thing. It's the thing we always feared or something like that. And then she's like, I gotta go. And that's how Elliot was able to get into the secured area of uh, Steel Mountain. Oh yeah, that's a great catch. Good job, Jamie. Thanks. But Angela shines too by herself here because she calls him on his game when Mobley and Darlene don't help her. And because she starts to say, look, I, I'm in a relationship. She tries to back out of it gracefully and he pushes his point on her. But then mm-hmm. she shines. She thinks of this stuff on her own. She, she's like, is that all you got? I just want to see a little fight from you. She like steps it up and, and like doubles down on him. That was really cool. Really smart. I think by Angela, it was very smart. It was really smart. And I was proud of her. <laughs> we girls have to think on our feet sometimes. So then uh, Darlene gives her some more instructions. She needs to find the cubicle with the flashing LEDs and the battery and plug in the battery backup that fully uh, engages this femtocell thing, I guess. Angela finds it, sets up the hack hardware. And uh, one thing I didn't like about this scene, Jamie, is I couldn't believe that this whole floor would be so devoid of agents. She just had a free, she had a free walk of this floor. Okay, so, I don't know. I think part of that was, yeah, kind of, eh. And, um, you know, part of it was kind of understandable because people were leaving. It was lunchtime. And I think that that was the reason why it was set um, to go off at 1130 exactly because they figured people would be stepping downstairs for lunch or stepping out of the building for lunch. Maybe. I guess they're getting ready to close down that field office the next day or later that day. So I could see it, I guess. But, you know, like this guy kind of catches Angela on the wrong floor. She's not an FBI person. She's in the bathroom, and he lets her go. I mean, he's interested in her, so I guess that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It seemed a little incongruous that she could just be free to roam around this floor. I agree, but I think it was definitely part. I think we were supposed to reason that it was about the lunch, um, the lunch break. So Darlene... For, at first congratulates her and tells her to go celebrate and then warns her that she has more work to do. Like, wait a minute, it's not working the way it should be. So right. Angela has to retreat to her cubicle down a That's couple right. floors. That's correct. And that was like, her reaction was my reaction. I would have wanted to like go take a nap at that point. Because yeah, what the fuck, dude? I've done everything you freaking asked me. I'm already sweating bullets. This is not my thing. I've been in peril. I've almost gotten caught. I've tried to have nerves of steel, and you don't know how much confidence self-talk it takes. And here you go. Now you're asking me to hack something because the Wi-Fi is cut out. And she's going on unwanted dates with Price and FBI agents, and <laughs> right. it's total stress. 
<laughs> it's Philip uh, Philip Americans type stress. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I need a break. <laughs> All right. So back at the hospital or whatever, wherever Elliot is, whatever institution or hospital or confinement room he's in, he considers the idea of master and slave. And thinks or tells us, we all have masters. Sometimes it's best just to ride shotgun and hope the road takes you where you want to go. That's an interesting philosophy, huh, Jamie? You can't do much about it sometimes. You just got to ride it out and hope it's going in the right direction. Well, I mean, okay, so that's so much of life, really. You know, when you are a person who is in any kind of a relationship, whether it's a personal relationship or a work relationship where you're kind of the you know, like the subordinate to someone or, you know, relationship with a company even, you know, or your your own business. You can't control everything. Sometimes you really do have to ride shotgun and hope for the best and just kind of, you know, be along for the ride and whatever unfolds, you're there and you're, you know, you have your hot positive hopes for whatever it is and, you know, and just sort of witness whatever unfolds it 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 was great and it's so appropriate to Elliot because he doesn't even know who's really in control because in the beginning you know um when there was the the fantasy part of it that was the sitcom part he was saying oh this is it this is like how um it is for me now like I'm not in control you're in control like talking to his dad like, uh, you know, this is what's happened. This is what my reality is going to be now because I'm, I'm not living in the world anymore, you know? And, you know, and and even the voiceover part, I think this is the part where um, it begins the scene where Elliot's literally in the passenger seat and his dad's driving, little boy Elliot. So Angela and Darlene continue this FBI cell phone hack and she gets interrupted again. And this time it's Dominique. And she's fixing this as Dominique interrupts her. And do you think Dominique suspects her, Jamie? Or do you think she's just crossing paths with her here? I think she's probably just crossing paths. Um, But Dominique is not a dumb bunny. So I don't know. All right. So I think she suspects her. I think she's kind of on to her. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I think it's entirely possible. And the way she kind of looked at Angela and then the look on Angela's face was so like, I just got caught. She looks so suspicious. Yeah. She looks like a caught red handed person would look. Exactly. She looked that way with the FBI guy too. She did. She looks scared. Mm-hmm. Suspicious. Look, uh, people that are guilty look scared. Uh, and so I've, what the fuck, dude? I don't want to go out with you. Get, the, get out of my way. Step aside. <laughs> All right. Next, we see Elliot getting thrown into the basement of this building by the thug uh, that's working for Ray. And Mr. Robot visits him down there and explains to Elliot how he was trying to protect him. And Elliot just grasps and hugs him and thanks him in this like really sweet father-son scene. But he says, I hate you. I, mean, I think he. I think he's really showing true. You all right? Yeah, I'm sorry. What was that a sneeze? It was a cough. Or a gasp. It was a cough. <laughs> sorry. Um, I think. I think he's showing true gratitude to to his whoever Mr. Robot is in his head. He's really thankful to him. I agree. Well, I you thought- said you you think you think he said he he hated him. Yeah, I do. 
and I want to look at my notes and make sure what I have in here, but I think that is exactly what he said. But let me let me just double check. All right. So while you're doing that, we go to the next part, the ending se session here. So it's the flashback part two, which is flashbackier than the first one. Elliot's younger. He's maybe what twelve or thirteen in this. He's a real. He's the real boy, Elliot. Yeah, it looks like um, like he's yeah, like he's uh, he's a little boy, like ten or eleven, something like that. Yeah. Him and his dad are driving along, and he's got a bruised cheek, Jamie. Apparently, from some bully at school. His dad's picked him up from school and asked if asked him some questions about. You know, did you fight back or did you somehow did you respond to whoever did this to you? I don't think it was a family thing on this one. I think it was some sort of kid at school. Yeah, no, it was a school thing because he mentioned something about the principal. And it's like um, Elliot didn't want to tell um, the principal like his side of it or something. It's like he got in trouble at school for fighting or or something. He said something like... Um, his dad said, so if I had to guess, I'd say you didn't tell Principal Howard your side. Right. And his dad is on his side here. It's hard to even call him Mr. Robot because he really seems like a father in this Ed Edward Alderson, Alderson, right. know, Mr. Robot, Edward, Christian Slater, tells him that he's always there to listen for him and he will never force him to talk. Um, and then reveals to him about his work, his work situation. That he's missed work because of a number of dates and gives him a few of the dates. And uh, Elliot asks what the dates mean. And he says they're dates I've gone in for treatment for cancer, for blood work. And he's essentially, essentially he's been fired for going and missing work on these dates. But he doesn't want anyone to know about it and asks Elliot to stay and keep that secret from everyone. Mm -hmm. oh, by the way, the, um, what Elliot said I was thinking was I hate you. It was thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. It's a big so, difference. Yeah, huge difference. <laughs> yeah. So it's a big thing to ask your kid not to tell. A father asking his 11 or 12-year-old son not to share the fact that he's got cancer with his yeah. mother. And it just doesn't seem to jive with the whole idea of his dad being who he was. Because that dad was really salt of the earth. And I'm starting to wonder if that point in time where his dad asks him to keep this thing a secret, if this is not somewhere around the time that Elliot experiences this break, like major break with real reality, and that maybe this is not a true memory, like an accurate memory. So, so let's break this down a little bit. Do you think that, that Edward, the father, is generally a good person and the mother is generally a bad person and for real? 100%. Or do you think maybe Elliot's distributing some of these memories because the guy pushed him out a window, Jamie? <laughs> I know, but we don't know that. Like, we know that from Elliot's memories. We don't know that from, like, reality, do you think do you think it could be possible that Elliot's transferred some like maybe the negative things about the father all onto the mother to make her into the evil whatever they called her like the evil person who burns us with cigarettes and slaps no. us and punches us? No, because that is a bad memory he has of his dad 
that doesn't jive with the rest of who his dad is. And so I think it's more likely that the dad did not push him out of a window. And if his dad did push him out of a window, there is another story to it. Because it doesn't make sense unless there's something more to that story that we don't yet know that why, would make why we, do you think Edward wants the cancer to be kept secret? See, that I don't know. I'm I'm just saying like all of that stuff, everything that surrounds this cancer and it being a secret and you know, I, everything about it just seems so very um unlike him. You know, yeah, he's an enigma for sure. The only thing I can think is that maybe he's told this to Elliot, you know, because he wants Elliot to know. And it is important that it's a secret, not for the sake of like just not wanting his family to know, but maybe he was trying to expose Ecorp. And he needed it to be a secret because it would have ruined his ability to expose them, you know, if it were not a secret. And I could see him getting very angry with Elliot for revealing it to his mother under those circumstances, because his mother is an odious human being who would not do the right thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wrestling with, is Edward really an enigma in real life or is he, is he the enigma in Elliot's memory slash mind of him now? And and are mom and dad really truly these ways that we see them, or are we the way? Are they the ways that we see them through Elliot's memory? Well, okay, so I don't know because you know he's an unreliable narrator. Um, I think that it's probably his mother is probably the way that she's presented, and I think that. I could have just happened upon something quite by accident because of your questioning. Maybe there's some some value to the thought that um, that is the reason that Elliot's father became so angry, angry enough to push Elliot, maybe not really meaning to push him out the window, but angry enough to push him because he was trying to expose E Corp and Elliot telling his mother would have ruined that. Yeah, and by the way, with the window thing, does he just push him and he falls out the window, or does he push him out of the window, meaning for him to be pushed and fall from the window? Right, and that is a question, and that's something we don't know. Right. Oh, by the way, did you notice in the opening um, of the uh, the fake the sitcom series that um, that's the like, you know how they have the little cute scene where every character is introduced and they you know they have the name of the, you know, the actor underneath it. On like the, every series from the 80s, yeah. Okay, so the one for Elliot, he's like <laughs> sitting up from having like fallen to the ground and he's got like window glass on his sweater. I don't know if you noticed that. Like he had just been picked up, picked himself up from the window. Right, like the ground. just. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. All right, so... um uh, Edward, the dad, says, I'm going to be okay. I'm never going to leave you. Now let's go pick out my new business. Let's look forward. Computers, everybody's going to want to have one. Which, If you think about it, in 1982 or 83 or whatever this was, that would be a really, really risky business to get into, Jamie. That's that's. It turns out to be perfectly true. But back then, that's a pretty – I mean, to put your sink your money into that 
like nobody had a computer then. Uh, to think everybody's going to want one and go to a store and buy one that costs like thousands of dollars, that's a that's a pretty risky business, I think, to get into. Yeah, I yes. Well, I okay, so his was not, like, from what I could tell, it was not, like, necessarily only selling uh, computers. It was, like, repairing and helping people understand how to use them, which could have been really, you know could have made a lot of sense and then you know also you have to think of you know the fact that he didn't have anything to lose because he'd lost his job maybe this was the best risk for him to take well if you're out of a job and you're worried about money and you're sinking rent into a new business and buying inventory and that is a pretty risky thing to do risky if it's inventory related but i don't know that it was that i think that some of it was related to like i mean I think some of it was inventory, but some of it was repair because I think a lot of it was repair because um, remember that the scene that we saw before, it was for work, I think, that that this guy was paying for that um, Elliot's dad had done to the computer. This, this scene from last season where they were in the Mr. Robot shop in the Maybe. past. We'll have to get a hold of their business plan because he does say everybody wants to have one as if I'm going to be the place where they come and get it. Well, either that or where they come to get their computer repaired or get help. Maybe. Elliot's fascinated by this, though. He's like, this is the best job he could ever think his dad revealing to him that he's going to start. Like, yes. can I work there? That's awesome. Can I work there? Yeah. And Mr. Robot says, yep. And your first job is to pick out the name. So they drive up to the building in the front of the building. And we see Elliot close his eyes and dreamily think of the name. And the scene and the episode ends with some really cool music uh, by a group called Television. Guiding Light was the name of that music. It was um, pretty fantastic. And uh, by the way, that's the name of a soap opera from back in the, I guess, probably 1980s. Um, but what I loved about that scene is that his dad was giving him this guiding imagery, you know, which he tends to do with Elliot. Uh, when he's not sinister, Mr. Robot. And he um, tells him, like, you know, just remember, you know, think about it. And then I think he tells him, close your eyes. And then he says, you know, first thought that comes into your head. Remember, first thought that comes into your head. And then you see this great little actor um, who plays Elliot in this episode. And I pulled up the cast and crew so that I could see who this kid was. So, Jamie, are you more are you more interested in the relationship between Elliot and Mr. Robot or the hack of the world's financial economy? You know, this show is about relationships. It's you know, it's 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 about the people. So my interest will always be in the, the relationships between the people. I don't care so much about the plot. The actor, by the way, um, who plays young Elliot, his name is Aiden Liebman. And I wanted to mention him specifically because I really love his acting. He's a very talented young actor. Um, and that scene I loved so much. Um, and I loved the way that um, Sam Asmael actually ended that that scene and the, and the episode because right in the moment that he's expected to say, Mr. Robot, all you get 
is him opening his eyes like <laughs> like he had the answer. And the, the look on the little actor's face, um, on Aiden's face, was just beautiful and priceless and really, truly played. I loved yeah, it. Yeah, that's kind of what he tells him to do. When, when we get there, open your eyes, and the first thought that you have when you see the building, that should be the name of the company. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool the way they set it up, and he doesn't say the name, of course. They just have right. to end it with that cool music. But I'm just thinking of this show. I mean, this show starts off as kind of a caper, like we're going to erase all the debt in the world and cause this financial crisis, and we're going to deal with that. Like, that's interesting. Whoever does that, whatever people do that, that's interesting. Like, Ocean's Eleven, you don't really care about the people so much as you do about the caper. The caper is what's interesting. So when I ask you, like, what's more fun and, and what do you think about when you think about this series, do you think about the caper of wiping out the world's finances, or do you think more about the relationship Elliot has with the people around him. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think it's more of the people. This is more of a psychological thriller than the technological thriller that they they kind of set it up as. Well, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's a, it's well, okay. So it's a tech thriller. It really is. But I think that um, that the show is based in relationships. It has to be because. Um, of the psychology that's actually involved in all of it and the, and in the focus, like the, it's written to be about the people versus the plot. Yeah. And that's kind of what Esmail said about season one, setting everything up for what he really wants to talk about is what starts to happen in season two. Okay. So Jamie, next episode is episode seven is handshake. And what do you have the, uh, context of what handshake means in technology? No, I didn't look ahead. <laughs> handshake is like when you when you get a new car and you introduce your cell phone to your car, they make a handshake. They make a digital handshake and they introduce themselves like through Bluetooth and that's oh, okay. how they connect. Or your handshake with your cell phone and your Bluetooth headphones. That's okay. what a handshake is. All right, cool. So handshake, uh, it's 5H4ANDSHAKE dot SME. I don't know what the extension is, but that's episode seven. But um, until then, Jamie, how do people reach you and your website? All right. So I'm on Twitter and I'm at Word Girly. And I'm also on uh, wishisaidthatshit.com. Did you add any new uh, shit you wish to say from yes. between last week and now? I did. All right. So, so hook up to that people on the website show notes. You can see on the episode show notes, you can see Jamie's website. Awesome. Uh, and at Word Girly, I'm at Scathing Tweets. Uh, Jamie, any final thoughts for Master Slave? Uh, no. I, I pretty much emptied out my pockets on that one. I loved the episode, though. I thought it was really, really fantastic. And this is my prediction. This is going to be one of the episodes or the episode that gets offered up um, for uh, Emmy nomination. Just because it's so different? Because it was so good. I think it was very different. I don't think it was my favorite so far, though. It's not my favorite. It was so well done. It was just so... It was not only different, but just just really so beautifully executed. And the, the kind of work that went into it, if you look at what was behind, you know, what it took to actually create this episode, I think it really is really singular in terms of the history of the series and maybe even television. All right, Jamie, your prediction is locked in digital cement forever. <laughs> right. See if it comes true. 
So we're halfway through. This this was episode six. This has twelve. This season has twelve episodes. Oh, by the way, uh, West Coast Project is starting to cover *Halt and Catch Fire*. I think it starts next week. Man, time is going by so quickly. Yeah. Uh, we got to catch up on *Making a Murderer* and finish that off. Uh, his nephew was re- Stephen's nephew was released. Well, uh, no, he was the. Um, it was Brendan Dassey. His conviction was overturned by the judge um, uh, in, in the case. And there are two steps now because the, the state now has the option to either offer him a new trial or to uh, challenge the overturning of the verdict. And in both of those cases, he would remain in jail. And um, so his only option for freedom right now, even though the verdict has been overturned. His only option for freedom is if the state chooses not to do anything else with the case. I don't know. I'm, I don't have as much faith in these people as you do that they would be willing to give up at this point because they really want Stephen Avery so badly. And if this, if this verdict is, I think that's what they call vacating a verdict. If it's, if, if this remains overturned, then it is going to be so much easier to overturn the verdict against Stephen Avery. And I think that could be the thing that makes the, the state decide to fight it. But let's keep our fingers crossed. We'll figure out our timing for that podcast with Mike and Jamie. Jamie's Shit I Wish I Said website. Halt and Catch Fire with Mike and Michelle. And of course, Mr. Robot with us. All right, Jamie. So I'll see you next week on Handshake. Awesome, Mike. Till then. Bye.